Welcome to Good Sex at NYU, a podcast about sex, relationships, health, and mental health in a sex-positive space. So if you're looking for sometimes serious, sometimes funny, and always sex-positive discussions, then you're in the right place. I'm Danielle Elliman, Associate Director of Sexual and Relationship Respect Services at Counseling and Wellness Services. I use she, her pronouns. And I am April Fellers, a nurse and sexual health educator at the Student Health Center. I also use she, her pronouns. We are two white, cisgender, heterosexual, female-identifying clinicians, one with a medical background and the other with mental health experience, who seek to create a space that is inclusive of all identities, backgrounds, and perspectives. Activation warning. The content of this podcast is about sex and relationships. The topics might be uncomfortable and awkward, but we hope that listeners will sit with this discomfort and consider new ideas and not judge others for their identities, likes, and desires. The intention is for the conversations to be positive, but at times we may talk about harms, boundaries that were violated, and trauma that has occurred, which can be difficult for some listeners. Take care of yourself. Listen to your body, and if needed, turn off the podcast and consider what your body and your mind needs to move through the reaction to difficult content. This could mean turning on a TV show, listening to music, calling a friend, going for a walk, or reaching out to the Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999 or Safe Horizons at 1-800-621-4673. So today we have Chelsea Garbell in the studio with us. Chelsea is the Associate Director for Global Spiritual Life at NYU and an adjunct lecturer in the Silver School of Social Work, where she teaches shaping change, spirituality, service, and social justice. Chelsea has previously held positions at the Bromman Center at NYU, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Asia Society Policy Institute, the Council on Foreign Relations, Religion, and Foreign Policy Program, and spent a year teaching English in Thailand. Chelsea has over a decade of experience in interfaith activism, and today co-chairs a chapter of the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom, and is involved with the Interfaith America's Emerging Leaders Network. Chelsea holds the perspective of an NYU employee, but also a former undergraduate and graduate student at NYU. Chelsea and I met through a common connection, Deanna Raymond, the Associate Director of Student Advocacy and Compliance at Tandon. Chelsea, is there anything else you would like to share with us about your connection to NYU or your work that I left out? Uh, no, I think you summed it up nicely. Happy to dive in. Excellent. So we heard a little bit about your roles at NYU. Can you tell us one thing that you really enjoy about being part of the NYU community? Oh, that's a good question. Obviously, I keep coming back for more <laughs> undergrad, graduate. I worked in a lot of different parts of the university at this point from the time I was a student. And it's a really special place. It's it's really unlike anywhere else I've ever been. And I think the people who are most successful at NYU are the folks who create opportunities for themselves, it's sort of like New York City as a whole. And that's what I've always loved about it. That's great. So we have a set of other questions that we we would like to ask you. But as we are going through, feel free to kind of turn the question around. You can ask us the same question. You can bring up a totally different question, anything. We just want this to be a comfortable space. And, and so you can feel free to, to ask us questions as well. Sounds good. So we're going to start off with maybe a question that we hope is just like some warm up questions to help us get into the mood, so to speak. So what song gets you in the mood or makes you feel really like confident and good about yourself? I, I'm not sure what you're going for with get in the mood, but <laughs> I will say that really anything Florence in the Machine is like my pump up music. Mm. Nice, nice. I, I told some folks earlier that we need to start a whole podcast uh, playlist. Yes, so Spotify playlist. Yes, yes, just for our podcast. Love it. Yeah. Yes. What about uh, a first crush? Maybe a, a fictional character, actor, somebody in real life? That's a funny one. It's sparking a memory for me I haven't thought of in years. I, My mom was a nurse and she's worked in hospitals my whole life and where she worked from the time I was a little kid had like a nursery school. Mm. And I have a very distinct memory of having a crush on one of the boys in my like class of three-year-olds. And I would <laughs> chase him around during recess. <laughs> I think his name was Daniel. 
but it's been a good 30 years or so <laughs> since I've thought about him. So. <laughs> but yeah, first first crush. Yeah. What was it about Daniel, you think? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what three-year-olds find, like, appealing, but um, yeah. I just knew that, like, a boy that I liked in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's sweet. Yeah. And... Have you had your first kiss? And if so, like, who was that? I mean, you don't necessarily have to name names, but, you know, if you'd like to, you can. Definitely have had my first kiss. Folks can't see me, but I am super pregnant right now. Uh, my first kiss was a boy in my youth group mm. when I was 15. And it was at a, like, a weekend retreat. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so how did you learn about personal boundaries? Would you say, like... You know, maybe that was around like first kiss, like whether or not you wanted to have your first kiss, but also perhaps if there are other boundaries like time boundaries, emotional relationship boundaries. So not just, you know, sexual and physical, but maybe included some other boundaries as well. How did you learn about that growing up? Hmm. There's sort of two answers to that. I, I would say that there's a more explicit one and a more implicit one. I think figuring out boundaries is something that people constantly navigate, whether Mm -hmm. it's interpersonal boundaries, professional boundaries. I think the last two years have messed up everybody's Mm -hmm. understanding Mm -hmm. of what boundaries mean, and we've had to renegotiate a lot of them. And so I think from really that point of, you know, being a preteen and a teenager up until, and in continuing in different ways, but until meeting my husband, I constantly rethought what are my my sexual boundaries. But I also was really lucky to have the parents that I have. I remember from a really early age, my dad sat me down and he said, I had this agreement with my father and I want to have the same agreement with you that before you do anything that's going to change you, whether it's drinking or smoking or having sex, anything that you do, I want you to wait 24 hours Mm. before you make the decision. And I want you to talk to somebody. It doesn't have to be me, but I want you to wait 24 hours and and really think about the choice you're going to make. And we called it the 24-hour rule. <laughs> and I, I don't know that I always invoked it, but there have definitely been moments in my life when I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to use this now in some, in some format. Maybe it's not exactly waiting 24 hours, but it's acknowledging this moment of pause mm-hmm. before making a big decision. And a lot of times boundaries around sex and touch are are some of those big decisions. I really love that. I'm like making notes. Making notes here. <laughs> well, also, I think it's really fascinating that your father was the one who sat you down and, and talked to you. I think like we have so many gender norms um, in our culture. And one of them is like, oh, it's usually, you know, the female identifying or mother in that you know position would have the conversation or have a conversation around these things. So I really also love that we don't just put all of that pressure on one person in a relationship who's, you know, Two people responsible for having children. Oftentimes, you know, one person gets a lot more of the emotional labor. And so it's good to to hear yeah. that your father was also involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds like part of part of that agreement too in, in talking to somebody else is kind of him teaching you about communication. Were there other other aspects of learning about communication growing up that you remember? Mm. Specifically around sex or or just in general, I guess? I haven't thought about it. I don't know. I I don't know that I ever got quite, quite like that next set of support. My parents have very different communication styles. They didn't communicate well with one another. So they haven't been married for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I think I don't know that either of them would say that like they have perfect communication styles. And I think I communicate differently from, from both of them as well. And I've sort of learned from watching what didn't work. Mm -hmm. And from how each of them approached the world as well. Yeah, I'm really relating to that. I feel like I learned a lot from watching people that weren't doing it very well. So I appreciate that. It's like, yeah, like sometimes we learn from really great role models and really people who really got the communication down. But I think that's so rare, to be honest with you. Everyone's still kind of figuring out how to communicate and each situation can be different. So what were some of the dominant messages you grew up with around sex and relationships? They were really varied, I would say. I spent most of my life in Orthodox Jewish schools, except for a three-year stint in public school, Mm. which are super different spaces. So the 
elementary school, I don't think there was really any conversation. Then that was my, my Jewish school. And then I went to, yeah, this public middle school where everyone had to take health class and the teacher brought out like a, she turned a manila folder into a condom chart as in she opened it up and it was filled with all different (laughs) kinds of condoms and colors and types. And around that time, I sort of stepped into this role that I would play for much of my life as being like that kid who was comfortable talking about sex and Mm. asking questions about it. We had to do a project in health class on a particular, like pick a class of drugs and report on how they functioned. And I have absolutely no idea why, and it still astonishes my parents that I did this, but I picked erectile dysfunction medication. Mm -hmm. Um, I was 12. I have absolutely (laughs) no idea what possessed me. I'm fascinated and kind of want you to like give me that uh, (laughs) report. (laughs) All I remember is Cialis lasts the longest. But that was a really different approach to then when I went back into Jewish high school, which was my own choice, and it was a place that I really loved. But not a place where we had anything even remotely resembling Hmm. sex ed. Anything that you knew you, I don't know, like learn from outside spaces. You learned, Mm -hmm. I learned it from my, I don't know, youth group or summer camp where kids were sort of experimenting. Or there was a website when I was growing up called like girl.com, G-U-R-L. It was very, very popular space for people to like, it was a forum. So Mm -hmm. this was, I don't know, 2004, 2005. Okay. Was Um, it mostly for female identifying People? I think so. Okay. Yeah. But that was like this magic open space of information. But yeah, in my high school, we were the only thing even remotely resembling sex ed was biology class, where for mm-hmm. the section on reproduction, we were split by gender. Mm-hmm. And I remember we watched, um, it's called The Miracle of Life, right? Mm-hmm. That movie about birth, mm-hmm. except they edited out conception and birth. I kind of can't have the miracle of life without either of those It was watching the, like, human development in utero. Mm -hmm. We got that for, like, the science perspective. But that was was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In in youth group and and at camps, were adults talking about sex? Or was it just kind of the people at camp talking amongst themselves? So the youth group that I went to was a different denomination than my high school. It was a more liberal space. And there were... There were different opportunities to have conversations about sexual ethics within Judaism. And I really, I was grateful for those spaces as I got older and became more of a leader in my youth group. I was able to actually curate some of them. Hmm. And it was also the kind of space where they acknowledged that like teenagers hook up with each other and experiment and figure things out, which was again, very different from my high school, but both were Jewish contexts and mm-hmm. settings. Mm-hmm. So I was, I always sort of had a foot in both places of like a space where there are really strict boundaries around what sex should look like, but we weren't really going to talk about them. And then spaces where we would talk about it, it still fits into the same ethical framework, but from a different perspective. Mm. And how did that impact you in your life sort of figuring these things out, like navigating those two worlds? I think because I've, I've often had a foot in multiple parts of Jewish communities, that's just impacted my understanding of, of religious pluralism more broadly. Mm. And with regard to sex, it it was sometimes complicated. Sometimes mm. I would feel better or worse about myself, depending on which space I was in mm. and which like set of choices I'd come to in my life at that point. But I always had a strong understanding that Judaism has something thoughtful to say about sexual ethics and that there are sources and people and role models that mm. I can have those conversations with. And also that I was somebody who could have those conversations and be a resource to other people as well within my own community. Mm-hmm. And that was where that the like seed of that germinated. Can you share a little bit more about what Judaism does say? Because I think sometimes we will find in different spaces, like religion can have sometimes harmful impact on how we view our bodies, how we view sex and relationships. And so I'm wondering if you can share with us a little bit more about like maybe what you were doing way back when um, sort of talking at camp and doing these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I will begin with a caveat that Judaism mm-hmm. never says anything. Okay. And really, I don't I don't think religion does in general. There's really no such thing as like the one perspective yeah. from a religion mm-hmm. because the way people practice is as diverse as their number of adherents yeah, mm-hmm. of a tradition. Correcting mm-hmm. me there. No, absolutely. That, yeah. There are – so there are many, many different Jewish approaches yeah. to, to sex and sexuality, but the – sort of more mainstream, orthodox, observant culture reserves sex for 
heterosexual married relationships. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in our texts about consent and pleasure. Again, because it's their heterosexual context, there's an obligation for a man to provide his wife with sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. And it's actually grounds for divorce if he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's from thousands yeah. of years ago. Yeah. And there's also some really negative ways of talking about women and thinking about women and, and sex. But there is a strong framework that like sex is a part of life. It's this natural thing. People should learn how to do it. There's a holy container for it, but it's a good thing. But it's also like not something that's talked about unless you're in that particular point in time. Mm -hmm. And there are not necessarily outlets for people who don't fit that model. And so in more liberal denominations, there's different understandings of like, does, can we replace this idea of heterosexual marriage with committed partnership? Mm. Or for some folks, the sort of religious laws that more observant communities might say structure and define their lives are suggestions. Maybe they're not directly from God. Maybe they're divinely inspired or it's a human community that came mm -hmm. up with a set of institutions and we've reached a new point. And so we're going to reimagine those in the context of the times we have today. Mm -hmm. And so that's, there's a huge spectrum of what you might say when you say like, what does Judaism think about sex? Mm -hmm. um, but one of the, the really powerful things about our tradition is that we have thousands of years of text. We love talking and arguing and <laughs> commenting and writing it all down. And so there are so many different texts that you can turn to, whether because you use them as a legal framework to structure your life or because you're looking for ethical guidance on how do I build a meaningful relationship? How do I craft boundaries? What does it mean to have questions about sex? One of my favorite stories in the Talmud, which is a compendium of conversations from about 2,500 years ago between rabbis throughout all different time periods. And it's the source text of all the Jewish law that, that structures modern day Jewish life. But there's a one particular story in the Talmud and it talks about there was a rabbi who was having sex with his wife. They were enjoying each other and a student had hidden under his bed hmm. to listen. Hmm. And he heard and he said, I think the euphemism he used, he's like, wow, it's like you've never tasted this dish before. Implying like, wow, I didn't like, you're getting really into this. And he said that out loud because I guess he didn't care about being found out. <laughs> and his teacher goes, in essence, what the hell are you doing under my bed while I have sex? This is incredibly inappropriate. Get yeah. the hell out. And his student says, this too is Torah and I must learn. Hmm. Which, and, and there's a lot to dive in and interrogate about this story, about consent, about teacher-student relationships. But there's also this beautiful idea that like, sex is an embodied part of how we are in the world. And that is also my religion and I have to mm -hmm. learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that, that story has been one that I've taught, one that's yeah. I've written about and really love. I mean, I'm really inspired by it as well, mm -hmm. you know, uh, cause I think so often we, we find in, in this space that folks aren't learning about pleasure. They're not learning how to do these things. And so that's just an embodiment of what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so would you say like your attitude towards sex in your family growing up, like there, was it, I don't know, comfortable, natural, awkward, repressive, something like that, or something other than what I was just sort of shared, but. Um, a good question. And I'm not actually sure the answer myself. Hmm. I think I'm an only child. I'm a girl. I think my parents had certain worries and, you know, hmm. my dad loved chain letters were like a thing back when I was a kid. I don't know if I need to give a caveat to people. Maybe. Chain you, might, you, might, you might need to like tell some some listeners what letters are. I don't know. It's sort of like an email version of a meme. Call mm. it that. <laughs> That's a good way to say it. Right? Yeah. But there was one, it's like, it's like dads telling their, their daughters dates and stuff. And mm. they're like, oh, I've got a shotgun across my lap kind of list mm -hmm. of things. They were always like very tongue in cheek, but my dad loved that stuff. So he was the guy with a 24 hour role, but he also liked the, I've got a shotgun by the window if you don't bring my <laughs> daughter home in time. And I think, you know, neither of my parents were unexperienced when they met one another, but parents still have kind of ideas about their children as children versus their children as developing adults. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember the first time I told my mom that I was sexually active, I was 18. 
And I was with a very serious long-term boyfriend. We were super safe. We'd had all of these conversations mm-hmm. and, and discussions about it. And she, I, I know she was still had this like, oh no, mm-hmm. like, oh, okay. Mm. Not that I had done anything wrong mm-hmm. or, and I, it wasn't a religious thing. It was just like, I don't know how to relate yeah. to this. I don't know like if I feel good about it or not. Mm-hmm. And that I think we never talked openly about it, but I know that there was a sense of like, oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm also thinking about the fact that you mentioned before you're pregnant. Yes. And so how will some of this sort of influence how you raise the child that you're about ready to welcome? Yeah. It's a good question. I have some time mm-hmm. to figure that out, uh, <laughs> which I am grateful for. Yes. And a partner that I really love and trust and feel like we can navigate that together. But I want to communicate things. I love the 24-hour rule. Mm-hmm. I also love some of the ethical ideas in Judaism about what it means to to have a meaningful, consensual, ethical partnership and sexual relationship with someone. And I know that the community I'm going to raise them in is one that has a certain set of values, but I also want them to make their own choices because I know that they will. And so how do you set them up? I don't know the answer quite yet, but how will (laughs) I set them up to be a part of a community that has a certain set of expectations while also giving them the agency and authority and confidence to navigate their own needs. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe having a little bit more of a comfortable, and not that you were saying that your family wasn't comfortable, but just trying to sex positive, comfortable, natural kind of. Yeah. And like, they're going to find this podcast and (laughs) like, mom, why, why does this exist? I'm so uncomfortable. Um, but, but yeah, I'm, I teach classes on sexual ethics and Judaism. I'm, I'm always going to be that person mm-hmm. who talks mm-hmm. about this openly. And so whether or not they want to talk to their mom specifically is like going to be their choice. Yeah. But I mm-hmm. hope to create an atmosphere where they feel that they can figure that out. And if it's not me that they talk to, <laughs> that they know that they could, you know, some friend of mom's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a good starting point. Even if you don't <laughs> have it all figured out. Thank you. I got to manage like diapers and stuff. First. Well, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I got time because you already feel so comfortable talking about it. Yeah. I think that helps. Totally. Uh, not that it's going to solve all of the challenges that you'll <laughs> experience in that, but I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it seems you, you mentioned that it's been a while that you've been comfortable talking about sex. Are there, are there things that have change perspectives that have changed over time? Maybe you had a negative attitude about something that you've now like changed your perspective either through experience or, or education. I don't know that I can't think of anything negative that has shifted for me. Or I guess like a, like a myth or a judgment that you, you previously held. I think that there, there have definitely been different moments in my life and different, not just moments, but like periods of time where I chose to engage more or less with sex and sexuality where I chose to like step back and impose more boundaries on myself. And that had to do with like, with growing up with different levels of engagement with my own religious tradition and saying like, I'm going to, I'm going to shift some of my boundaries as I explore different kinds of observance. And that's a hard thing to do. There's no, like, there's no sort of tradition in Judaism where like you are, you start over in some capacity. And I know that there are other communities that have that where, Mm -hmm. you know, you make a certain kind of religious obligation and you you can sort of snap your fingers and start over Mm -hmm. when it comes to your sexual history. And that's not the case in Judaism. It's just sort of, I'm making different choices as I go through my life. And, and some of those choices have waxed and waned in different periods of my life. In college, I chose to have, to narrow the scope of what I was willing to do sexually. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up writing my undergraduate thesis on the crafting of a modern Jewish sexual ethic. And Mm -hmm. it was actually this, not just um, academic interest of mine, but it was a deeply personal exercise where I Mm -hmm. had to reflect on why was I making certain choices? How was I limiting myself? Was I making myself feel better or worse? And I I sort of renegotiated what my boundaries Mm -hmm. were from that point onward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like so often we need to take a step back and sort of figure out what is the social norm or what is the world telling me that I should be doing? 
and what is it that I actually want mm-hmm. and try to decipher if, if they're the same or maybe they're really different because I feel like, you know, some of the things that you're saying I'm really connected to, even though I don't have like any, you know, spiritual connection, but I feel like, you know, am I doing this just because like, oh, this is what like everyone else is doing, what mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be doing, or is this something that I really want to do sort of authentically looking at my boundaries and saying, I really want to engage in this. I'm not just doing this because my partner wants to or because all of my friends are. So I really sort of liked how you framed that and um, really sort of felt connected to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. And it's it's funny because sometimes that reframing wasn't always for the better. Hmm. It was a, It's a constant reframing, I think, that I engaged in throughout my 20s. And not to say I ever regret any of the choices that I made because I think they were made for the most part pretty thoughtfully. But we continue to change. We change mm-hmm. all the time. I love telling students like what you think you're going to do with the rest of your life is mm-hmm. probably not what you're going to do with the rest mm-hmm. of your life. Mm-hmm. And I think the way we navigate embodied choices is is kind of the same. I think that what you shared also demonstrates, you know, a lot of times people think, oh, well, I've crossed this line in my sexual behaviors. So that's always going to be the line that I'm okay with. And, and I think that you really demonstrated that that's not always like people can change their minds and you can change your own boundaries and make them more tight and more loose when you feel ready. And it's, it's not just like, Oh, well, I did this one thing this time. So that's where I got to go all the rest of the time. So, yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've found that the moments where I, didn't necessarily take like 24 hours to pause, (laughs) but where I had an opportunity to pause in whatever sexual encounter that I had and say, do I have all the information? And is this what I want to do? And even if that's just like a moment of looking at yourself in the bathroom mirror and asking those questions, Mm -hmm. and I would say yes or no. And then I could move forward with that choice. Those are the best sexual experiences that I've had. And that I, the Mm -hmm. ones that I, I always felt good about um, mm-hmm. And never questioned, not in the sense of, you know, did something happen to me, but did I fully engage this way in, in a way that I wanted to and mm-hmm. felt good about? Because I, I think conversations about whether or not a sexual experience is good or bad right now, they sort of hinge around like, did I consent or not? Mm-hmm. But that's not Mm-mm. the same mm-hmm. thing as whether mm-hmm. or not it was a yeah. good experience. Right. And having a moment to pause and say, is this what I want? And is this the way that I want it to be? And being able to say yes makes those experiences good, no matter what comes afterward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about uh, relationship models and your experience with that. Like, what kind of relationship models you've been exposed to, maybe growing up or even now? And, you know, has that influenced your feelings about the various different models and, you know, sort of what you're engaging with now? Yeah. Um, to be honest, I, I really only ever had monogamy as a model. Yeah. I mean, and that can mean a lot of different things. So married or not married, mm-hmm. but but monogamy was the big model in my life. I would say until I got to college, heterosexual monogamy was also the only model I really encountered. It's been nice to see non I think that's the only other for one I've seen non-heterosexual monogamy as a different kinds of relationships and the way that that has sort of broken down gender norms mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. But I still don't have much exposure to other kinds of relationship models. Um, I had a friend in college who briefly tried out an open relationship, and I remember mm-hmm. talking about that with her. But I, I've i seen good marriages and bad ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that monogamy was like the issue in those mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. I think communication styles and what people think that they want in a life partner and what people understand as the term for the rest of your life actually means <laughs> um, and expectations about how people will change and what you need to be successful building a life with somebody. But I think that that is possible no matter what the configuration mm-hmm. it's just, it's about a deep understanding of what it is that both people are committing to, whatever that mm-hmm. may be and knowing how to communicate. Yeah. Well, I know. And in some religions, they have various different types of, you know, Mm-hmm. marriages and, and relationship models. And so I feel like that's something that that's my was my only exposure, I guess, like sort of growing up, I didn't have any of the uh, folks around us doing anything other than monogamy as well. So that was like, oh, well, didn't, you know, this person in the, the Bible, like have 
multiple wives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like, that didn't seem, that didn't really sort of, I was like, that, no one ever does that. And now it's just, it's, it's shifted and changed so much in the last, you know, number of years. So happy to see that evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's actually a funny point. Growing up, nobody would ever like turn to the <laughs> Bible and be like, and this is another relationship model. That, mm-hmm. I never heard mm-hmm. that in Judaism, at least. And in certain parts of the Jewish world, it's been not a thing that you can't have non-monogamy for like over a thousand years. Mm. So even though it's an example in the Torah, it's not something that people practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think anybody was ever like, well, they did it. Why can't I? Well, I think I just thought it was like strange. (laughs) I was like, oh, well, and I'm going to get this wrong because I I am going to turn to people who have a little bit more experience. But I think it was like, there was, you know, let's marry this one. And then, oh, well, she's not having a baby. So let's go and, you know, marry the sister. (laughs) And so then you have these two wives and it's like, that that feels wrong. (laughs) So that, that was my experience growing up was just like, well, I thought you were only supposed to have one, you know, and and that's sort of where it's not that anyone said, oh, this is like polyamory. And this is, you know, it was just like, that was my only experience growing up was like having heard about it in those spaces. Yeah. I feel like they were presented as both archetypes, but also people whose lives like sit on this shelf in this book, but not necessarily that we, and and in many ways we do try to emulate, but (laughs) Mm -hmm. not in every single way. Mm -hmm. April, I don't know about you. Yeah. I grew up in Christian faith. So I like, when you're talking, I'm thinking of like Jacob, right. And marrying. I was thinking like a Rachel. Is there like a Rachel in there someplace? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Okay. It's, It's in the in there somewhere in there (laughs) yeah polygamy and polyamory are painted in different lights Mm. i feel like in our society and like polygamy is related to spiritual faiths and is frowned upon but polyamory is now becoming much more widely acceptable and i don't think in my brain i can separate the two they they kind of feel the same and i'm not saying that i think one is better or worse or that it shouldn't be a thing. But I just think polygamy, I think, has just been painted in such a bad, bad light. And, and you know, I think most states around the country, you can't have more than one partner. You have yeah. to get divorced before you marry somebody else. But I have known people in successful polyamorous relationships with multiple partners. And so, you know, is that something that we need to reevaluate moving forward? Do we mm-hmm. need to think about making polygamy legal and is that the right term and is that what people would how people would want to identify you know that's so interesting and it it relates i think in many ways to some of the issues around whether or not queer folks could can get married because it it brings in issues of the state mm-hmm. and of control and rights and obligations into a conversation that some people don't actually want to take it there because mm-hmm. involving more state oversight mm-hmm. into personal relationships isn't everybody's cup of tea Yeah, because the state is not always a benevolent power. Mm. And so what, is it, what would it mean to say, you know, we're continuing to expand the realm of what it means to legally build a family and what is a family? And do we, do we want more state intervention in that? Or do we actually want less, but just more mm. societal approval? And it's interesting what you said about the polygamy polyamory difference. And I'm just thinking about, you know, the, in Hebrew, in Judaism, we refer to them as like the forefathers and foremothers. And they're all people we're supposed to emulate. And, they, you know, they're a part of prayers. But it was just the, you know, the fact that they had these unusual relationship scenarios was like a specific contextual thing. Mm-hmm. And it made sense in that time, in that place, and God was cool with it, and we don't do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never, I've never thought about that dichotomy of polygamy being looked down upon. I mean, not everyone loves the idea of polyamory, but yeah. in liberal spaces, when folks are in polyamorous relationships, it's assumed that there is consent and mm. like a liberatory process involved. Mm. Whereas in polygamous mm. institutions, especially if they're tied to a particular religious culture, there's, there's the assumption that it's oppressive in some mm-hmm. capacity and it's not a choice which is a a really big assumption to make. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great distinction. And also that generally is some like an assumption. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've learned some stuff already. (laughs) (laughs) Would you want to tell your younger self anything sort of knowing what you know now, sort of looking back as you were becoming sexually active? Is there anything that you wish Mm -hmm. you would have known? Not at the start. 
I think I, f- I felt pretty good about all my choices at the very, okay. at the start. It was sort of that in-between time as I was going through different parts of my 20s. Well, what would you have told yourself I, at 20? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> okay. I, would, I would remind myself to take more of those pauses mm-hmm. because it was the moments when I didn't pause and didn't, didn't feel like I made a choice mm-hmm. that I never felt as good about. The moments of pause were the ones where I felt deeply empowered mm-hmm. in, in everything that I did. You've talked a little bit about how your identity as being Jewish is, uh, has influenced some of your decisions. Mm-hmm. Are there other identities or other parts of, of being Jewish that you feel like have influenced your perspectives and views on sex and relationships? I, I think I the, the two ways that I move through the world and I'm like incapable of separating myself from when I wake my, open my eyes in the morning are being Jewish and being a woman. Mm-hmm. I am cis and heterosexual. And so I, I bring that with me, but understanding power dynamics and, and growing in that understanding has actually been really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. Um, college is sort of, I think where people always dive in and start to ask those questions Mm -hmm. and think about like, how does my gender identity play a role in how I navigate the world? And so I think that that, that influences both how I've approached my sexuality, uh, obviously, but also how I've understood the intersection of my religion and my sexuality and, and thinking about what are the roles that women have played in Judaism throughout history? What, what are the expectations that have been placed on women? What are the expectations that have been uniquely placed on Jewish women? And those intersections are, are something that I carry with me. You know, am I, am I making this choice because of how society tells me as a woman, I'm supposed to behave? Mm-hmm. Am I making this choice because of how I'm, I think I want my religious community to view me, mm-hmm. what I want them to think about me and my, and my ethics. Mm-hmm. And all of those sit at an intersection. That answer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing that you already mentioned was power mm-hmm. in that. And, and so I'm wondering if you can maybe share a little bit more about how power, privilege, and oppression maybe play into your sexuality and how you engage in relationships? Mm. That's a good question. I haven't found that... I don't think I've ever looked at my own sexual relationships through lenses of oppression, Mm -hmm. and I feel lucky for that. Mm -hmm. But I think privilege is certainly an important one, and I think in both directions, sort of, so that I am privileged as like a straight white woman that I move through the world in a certain way and that the sexual choices that I make aren't necessary. You know, there might be assumptions made about like me being a woman, but there aren't assumptions made about me being a white woman, mm-hmm. um, about the sexual choices that I make that women of color are not necessarily given the same benefit of the doubt. And at the same time, when women make choices about sex, no matter what their racial mm-hmm. identity, there's like a lot of assumptions placed on them. And there's mm-hmm. the virgin whore dichotomy that a lot of women are, are forced into, particularly in religious contexts. Sometimes it, while I'm the person who's like always comfortable talking about sex, I've always, I'm also deeply aware that that paints me a certain way mm-hmm. as like, oh, is she like the hypersexual mm-hmm. girl? It, not just in religious contexts, but in any of them. It's like, oh, there's Chelsea talking about sex and like what is what does that make people assume about Mm me and that's something i've been self-conscious about at different points in my life Mm -hmm. but i think having these conversations complicates sort of the easy boxes that we can put people into about Mm -hmm. like she's this and from there and believes this and practices that way and so i just i know what she's going to say about sex Mm -hmm. and i like complicating that i like living Mm -hmm. in the in-between spaces where real people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a Christian faith that was also very, it was very repressive talking about sex. And I feel like me becoming interested in talking about sex and becoming a sex educator really is like kind of pushing that, mm-hmm. that boundary and, and pushing that stereotype of like, I'm going to do this because you've told me so long not to do this and not to think about this. And, and so I like that getting into that space and kind of mixing things up and not giving people what they expect all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think even in high school, I was willing to talk about sex and I wanted to talk about it in the theoretical, but I didn't tell anybody I was having sex Mm. except a couple of friends because that would change how a lot of people saw me Mm. and thought about me. 
but it's important. I've always loved talking about sex and religion yeah. more than anything else yeah. <laughs> because there's sort of these, these two massive driving forces for humanity mm. and they're not good and they're not bad. They just are. Yeah. And I, I find that utterly fascinating and I have for a long, long time and I want to talk about it in an open way. And sometimes I think in an effort to be open, but also to be cool because like people make assumptions about girls and sex all the time. Like I wanted to be a little provocative mm. and did I, sometimes I think I may, might've gone too far in like trying to be cool enough and trying to be provocative that I painted myself a certain way that I just wanted to have these conversations and also to be a safe space for other people to have these conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like I connected on so much of that as well, but you might have already answered uh, the next couple of questions that we had planned. How often do you talk about sex? <laughs> and Wait. with whom do you talk about it? <laughs> so I'm going to guess I'm going to a lot and a lot. a lot of people. A lot of people, a lot of different contexts. And it's it's been more prevalent in my life it, obviously at different points. Mm. I've been involved in different reproductive justice work at different moments, you know, in in college where people are exploring a little bit mm-hmm. and now I'm at a point in my life, you know, I I work global spiritual life, but I also moonlight as a Jewish educator. And I have like text conversations about sex. So they look a little bit different. I'm not taking a friend to a sex shop in the West Village. I'm having Mm a Torah-based conversation. (laughs) And so they look different. But I I like being that space. I really connect with that. I feel like I'm often the friend who people will come to with questions about it and will go to the sex shop with. So um, have always been someone who... I mean, could have the conversation and really liked having the conversation because I think it's so important. So yeah, good to meet a fellow (laughs) person who's having those conversations all of the time. Wayfinder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you having these conversations in your job with people at Global Spiritual Life? Not so often. That's a great question. I don't know that students think of me that way, Mm -hmm. which is okay. Maybe we can change that. (laughs) (laughs) Quite possibly. There are a lot of things I talk to students about and help resource them. But a lot of times what we end up doing in global spiritual life is helping students find their spiritual home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can talk about Judaism with students and be that space for them. And I can talk broadly about spirituality and help them ask big questions. But they might be looking for somebody from their own tradition, or they might be curious about a tradition that they've never encountered. And so it's my job in that moment to guide them to the right person mm-hmm. among our spiritual life advising team or to our mindful faculty. But I'm always happy to have those conversations <laughs> by all means. Mm-hmm. So it really, it's just a matter of like, what is the need and how can I serve that? Yeah. And so how important is sex in your personal life, like in your relationships and, you know, It sounds like maybe you've already sort of said some of this, but it's ebbed and flowed in different times in your life. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's ebbed and flowed based on the nature of the relationships I was in or not in Mm -hmm. and how I was engaging in different moments with my own connection to Judaism. And now, you know, I'm in a committed relationship. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's it's still a part of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So we we talked a lot on this podcast about sexual projects. It came Mm. from a a book called Sexual Citizens. And so a sexual project is, you know, sort of the reason why people have sex or why they engage in sex. And it can be various different reasons. So to gain experience for pleasure, intimacy, to have a baby. And, you know, people can have multiple or change over time. Are there points in your life that you were kind of thinking about sexual projects? Not necessarily in that term, but kind of like... What have been some of your sexual projects over the years? I love that term. That's I want to read that book now. Mm. There's definitely been a few. I would say the first time it was to know that the first time I had sex was going to be with somebody that I loved and trusted and could have a a conversation about it with beforehand. And that was my, my serious relationship in high school. Mm. And it was for intimacy and connection. And I got all of those things which was great. There was another period I mentioned when I was in college, when I chose to narrow the boundaries of what I was comfortable doing sexually. And that was as I engaged more with the Jewish community as a student and had ideas about what I needed to do in order to be a part of the community. And then as I was writing my thesis, I got shook up in a lot of ways Mm. because it wasn't just an examination of I was in media culture and communication and I chose, I'll give side digress for a moment. 
the year I was graduating, a website called Jurotica launched. But it was this really fascinating website filled with articles and stories and erotica and just everything you could imagine had a rating system. And I decided to use this website as an article of inquiry to examine what it meant to mold a modern Jewish sexual ethic. Mm. But there was no way for me to do that without interrogating my mm. own approach to Jewish sexual ethics and why I was making the choices that I was making. And it was it was hard. But I was very lucky that I had a professor who didn't mind that I picked a highly unusual topic <laughs> for a MCC thesis because I just want to talk about sex and religion. I remember, I'll never forget this. He said, write your utopia. Mm -hmm. And that was an opportunity for me to do it. And it forced me to reckon with a lot of things that I was encountering and going through when I was 22. That too was a project. And I shifted after that and mm -hmm. saying, I'm going to rewiden that understanding of, mm -hmm. of what I'm comfortable doing sexually. And then that realization of pause was mm -hmm. something that was more recent, in my, you know, towards the end of my 20s. And I don't know that I'd ever articulated it to myself before, but I had an experience where I got to pause and make a choice. And I was hyper, it was, it was very meta. I was very conscious mm -hmm. of that moment. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, this too is, is a project now that I have the language for it. Thank mm -hmm. you. <laughs> and now my project is that I am in a loving marriage and sex is a part of healthy relationships and making children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You accomplished one project right Thank there. Thank you. <laughs> well done. <laughs> now I got to get them out. <laughs> Terrified. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you do to take care of your health, sexual health and mental health? Oh, great question. I'm the child of a nurse. So mm -hmm. I'm always on top of like regular appointments and the dentist every six months. I have a therapy practice, which I really am grateful for in the last several years starting grad school. <laughs> Highly recommend if you're going to grad school that you get some therapy. Yes. <laughs> Trying to be more intentional about exercise and how I care for my body, which is so not my vibe. But <laughs> my husband's the kind of guy who's like, I'm going to go for a run and he'll do seven miles around Central Park. Wow. And I'm tired just thinking about that. <laughs> um, so I'm trying to be better about caring for my physical health because I know that that's important, even if it doesn't sound fun to me all the time. And I think caring for my sexual health involves seeing doctors, which is something not everybody's comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, but making that like a regular part of what I do and how I engage with my body. I think caring for my sexual health also means like talking about it mm -hmm. and being in a space like this yeah. um, where I have to be honest and thoughtful and help other people to do so as well. Have you had any negative experiences in the healthcare setting or has there been a time that you've wanted to ask a doctor something that you didn't feel comfortable asking? By and large, no. I think everyone's had like a, a doctor they didn't particularly love mm. or like, you know, an experience, but, but no, by and large, I've been very lucky with the healthcare system. And I, I attribute that so much of that to my mom mm. who taught me how to walk into an appointment with a list full of questions and mm. advocate for yourself. I think it's, you know, I went to preschool in a hospital <laughs> and, and feeling like this is my experience and I'm allowed to own it and question it and make mm -hmm. sure that it meets my needs, mm -hmm. which is, again, touches on a lot of different kinds of privilege that I hold, but is so important for people to be able to be healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think advocating for oneself is, is a, a skill that we need to continue teaching to people especially in the healthcare setting. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Because that's one of those institutions that can be really oppressive. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that all people feel like they have the space to be their own personal advocate and when not, who can they go to yeah. to seek that out for support? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So our last question, mm -hmm. what does good sex mean to you? Ooh. Oh, that's a great question. I think good sex is sex that you choose and I don't mean in a just a purely consensual <laughs> way, like I've said, but you know that it's an encounter that you want. And when I say encounter, I don't just mean that like you bump into somebody on the street, but there's a moment of connection between two mm -hmm. people and whether that's connection for a night or for the rest of your life or anything in between, but there's, there's a true moment of connection. Both people have entered into it willingly and had a moment to think about that. Is this what I want right now? But where there's still a little bit of tension, a little bit of tingly, like what's mm. going to happen next. 
I'm unsure, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. And where both people have their needs met, whatever mm-hmm. that might mean for mm-hmm. them. Good sex doesn't necessarily have to mean that both people orgasm, yep. mm-hmm. but if that's what they want, it should, that you feel empowered to ask for what feels good and to say no to what doesn't. And that afterward, you you think well of the experience. I like that. Such a good answer. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, I really love having these conversations and just hearing about other people's journeys and helps me feel like I'm not alone and, and that, you know, we're all in this together. Is there anything else you would like to share about this topic for the listeners that we haven't already discussed or anything else that you want to share with listeners as well? Sure. I can't help but give a plug for my office and my team, Global Spiritual Life at NYU. We are a space to have conversations like this Mm. and so many other kinds of conversations too, but helping people navigate what it means to be a person in the world and how your sexuality or really anything else that is important to you intersects with your spirituality, with your religious practice, with your questions about the meaning of life. And we're here to hold space for those conversations or to help you find the right people for you to do so on your own. Are there ways that people can easily find Global Spiritual Life, either social media, email address? I would say social media is probably the the easiest and fastest way to find (laughs) us. We are on Instagram at MindfulNYU and NYU Global Spiritual Life. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you both for having me. Thanks. If you have questions about the podcast or anything we talked about today, please feel free to reach out to us at goodsex.podcast at nyu.edu. This email address is monitored during business hours and may take three to four days for follow-up. We are definitely open to critical and thoughtful feedback as we didn't cover everything in this episode and might have said something that was inaccurate or that had a negative impact on someone. If you have questions about your sexual health and are an NYU student, you can connect with our Student Health Center sex expert at sexpert at nyu.edu or schedule an appointment through the Student Health Center portal. Look at our show notes for additional information and resources, including organizations, articles, books, and videos. If you have urgent mental health concerns, safety issues, or you are worried that someone might have caused harm to you or that you might have caused harm to someone, then you can contact NYU's Confidential Wellness Exchange at 212-443-9999. Chat with them using their mobile app or email them at wellness.exchange at nyu.edu. For anyone, NYU or non-NYU listeners, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Or the National Mental Health Hotline. Simply dial 988 from anywhere in the U.S. Thanks for listening and tune in to our next episode where we continue to talk about good sex at NYU. Subscribe to the podcast to hear all of our quickies and interviews with NYU community members. Thanks to our content contributors for this episode, Bernadette Kerr, Alyssa LaFosse, Dr. Dominic Viney-Emisa, Zoe Raguzios, and to our health promotion team, Anna Genova, Jenny Mellum, Parade Stone, and Arna Dixit, and to Gotham Studios and Karen Ortman. Thank you.